The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Week four. Shelley Graff will be here next week. I'll be teaching out on the West Coast again. And uh, maybe I'll just do a quick announcement before, just because we'll have small groups tonight and we're often rushed. Uh, Sharon Byers, who sprained her ankle, is looking for someone to carpool with. She's very close, on 22nd and Franklin, and I have her email address. So if someone's willing to pick her up next Monday night and bring her home, 22nd and Franklin is just three-quarters of a mile at most from here, so... You can just come up afterward, or if someone wants to do that. Anyway, it'd be nice for someone to follow through with Sharon. So we've been contemplating the reality of impermanence, and we're hopefully remembering that we're not trying to impose some metaphysical truth on our mind. Okay, This is how it is. So instead of believing in this, you know, we Buddhists, we believe in impermanence. And uh, it, it does tend to happen that way. Um, and then people in their meditation practice, they go looking for impermanence. And you might even felt, might have felt that that's what we were trying to do tonight. And it's subtle. Because we're not so much looking for impermanence as much as we're giving permission for experience to reveal whatever it is. So whether we're aware of sensation, the breath, or more widely the body, sensations in the body, or we're aware of hearing, or aware of mental activity, or aware of seeing, or whatever else, not too much else we can be aware of. You know, the six sense gates, we have the five physical senses that we can be aware of, and mental activity, and that's it. So whatever of that the mind is aware of, right? we're interested, we stabilize awareness so that we can contemplate, well, is it set, permanent, solid, or is it changing? And we watch, or we open, or we settle. We allow the moment conditions to express themselves. What are the nature, what is, what are, what are the nature of conditions? What is the nature of conditions? <laughs> yeah, of these six things. These are the conditions that come and go. What is their alt, uh, underlying nature? And what is the impact of studying or contemplating the underlying nature? So we're you know, in the middle of the course. Hopefully many of you have been doing some study, reading some of the articles or listening to some other talks on impermanence that you can find on dharmaseed.org, other teachers speaking on this topic. There's so many good talks on impermanence that you can listen to. So you're studying, you're hearing what others have said, you have your own practice, your own you know, 20 hours a day, 16 hours a day, depending how many hours you're asleep, to contemplate experience. And then our formal meditation time is just a time when 
we have the resources and supports to cultivate a mind that's better at contemplation because there are fewer distractions, right, when we have our formal sitting time and we get to bring our skill to bear on settling, unifying the mind. One of the ways that samadhi is defined, this unification of mind or often translated as concentration, but it's really every aspect of the heart or the mind is in line with the single purpose, which in the case of Vipassana, insight meditation, wisdom practice, that purpose is to want to see things as they are, want to connect, the wholesome desire to connect and see the nature of experience or the nature of the mind that knows, right? So we, that's the, calm isn't for the, its own sake, as nice and healing as it is to have a calm, settled, unified, stable mind. It's very emotionally and spiritually healing in and of itself. But actually what's even more impactful is learning to use that mind to contemplate the nature of experience. And in the next three courses, this one, the summer, we're doing impermanence, the fall, we'll do dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, and then in the winter we'll do anatta, the impersonal nature. But together these three, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of all phenomena, and the impersonal nature of all phenomena, they're really opening to the way it is. Again, it's not about philosophy, it's about getting close to our experience as a human being. And it's not our idea of the way it is, but not, you know, it's it's not even about pushing the ideas or the thoughts away, it's just learning how to connect with the present moment. Sound, sight, sensation, smell, taste, and mental activity, not in terms of its content, but in terms of mental activity. What's a thought, observing or knowing a thought, when we're not caught or confused by the content of that thought? What's a thought regardless of the content of the thought? What is a thought as a phenomena? Well, when you see that, you see how ephemeral a thought is. But the content, right, content has the appearance, like if I think of my house, right, the idea of my house has a real solidity to it. Because I've had that thought a lot. doesn't mean seeing the house is the same or touching the house is the same, right? But the idea, so concepts, Two things sort of create the illusion of permanence. Concepts and continuity, right? Because things are changing, but things are changing in a conditional way. There's continuity to how things change. So even though calm ground, this is not the same calm ground that was here last week, right? But there's some 
continuity, right? There's been some change, but a lot of, you know, sort of meets our expectation. And when we connect with our partners again or our friends again, you know, there's they, whatever they are, they're part of a conditional process. So they're related to who we had met previously. So we just get confused by the concept and how with continuity, it's very easy for the concept to be placed on the object as if it's the same. I mean, we've been doing that to this changing process we call me, Mark, in my case, right, for a long time, 61 years. Is this me? Yeah, this is me. Right? And there's a kind of solidity to that because it looks like the me when I checked the last time I checked. Is this me? Oh, yeah, this is me. You know, you hold out the mirror. Oh, yeah, me, just as I suspected. But you'll see, like, when we cultivate that stability of awareness, doesn't have an agenda, just wants to see. And you just, it doesn't matter what aspect of experience comes into view, and the mind contemplates the nature of that experience. Could be a hearing, could be feeling sensation, could be noticing mental activity. So whatever it might be, even visual experience. Although with visual experience, you know, when I look at that sconce on the wall over there, I really have to train my mind not to be confused by the perception. So the perception is a mental activity that basically recognizes that shape and color and says, sconce, wall sconce. These are the wall sconces we ordered for Common Ground, you know, 11 years ago or whatever it was. So that perceptual process is happening. It's hard to stay present with the visual experience because it's almost like the perception, the way the mind labels or recognizes that visual experience, it sort of comes. And so what the mind that knows is knowing is the perception. It's hard to stay at the level of seeing because seeing is very, for us humans at least, seeing is very closely linked with thinking, right? So it's a primary sense gate for us and it's really tied to thinking. Just try it sometimes, you know, where you, you it gets a little trippy where you're looking. It's kind of a little bit similar to how, what we did with kids, you know, and your friend would say, okay, say pineapple 20 times really fast. Pineapple, 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 pineapple. For the first, you know, four or five times, pineapple sounds like pineapple, right? Because because mostly the mind is dominated with the concept pineapple. But after, you know, five, ten times of repeating pineapple, it's just sound being known. And it gets a little weird, right? And it's the same thing with visual experience. You can look at your hand until there's no such thing as a hand there. Because hand is a concept. So this is, this is the what we need for contemplation, like if we're going to contemplate the underlying nature to see if what the Buddha came to understand, not so much that everything is changing, but by highlighting that aspect, like using that frame skillfully, training the mind to notice change, 
because of the effect it has. So we can do that too. Can we, with whatever experience attention is tuning into, can we see that in terms of change? And what is the effect on the mind when we do that with real sincerity over a period of time? And we do this on all different frequency levels. Monday was born about 12 hours ago, whatever, and now we're getting to that arc where Monday is disappearing. The class began at 7.30. Now we're sort of arcing through the middle of the class, and very soon it will be gone. This breath is coming in. It's going out. So there's this sort of more gross level of impermanence. I used to be in my 50s. Now I'm in my 60s. You know, it used to be like this. Now it's like this. So we can contemplate that level. And then when the conditions are suitable, we can do this more uh, powerful and refined examination, contemplation of reality, like we tried to do tonight during the guided sit. And to really take the time to create a beautiful instrument for that contemplation. That's what makes it different than, otherwise it will end up being a conceptual process. You'll be sitting, you'll look like you're meditating, but you're basically thinking about these Dharma concepts that everything is changing. And then you bring the breath to mind and you're thinking that the breath is changing or you're thinking that these sensations are changing. And you might have some sort of sense of change, but it's more like this grosser reflection we can do all day long. Monday began, Monday's ending, right? Where we're using concept, that's useful. I'm not saying it's not useful, but... It's sort of like when the mind sees this in a more simple, direct, and non-conceptual way, the impact, how it changes the view, the sort of spiritual impact, is, is sort of exponentially transforming compared to just getting good at noticing the meeting began and now I'm walking out of the meeting. Now this is beginning and now this is ending that sort of begins to loosen the screws. But the other way, seeing it in a more refined way, the truth of impermanence, is really like ground that we thought was dependable all of a sudden isn't there. Right? It really, because the mind, the wisdom in the mind will generalize. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago about thought, when the mind really sees a thought, not in terms of the content of the thought, but just as a mental phenomena, it comes and it goes. It's not much of anything. It really forever, like if the mind sees that with some clarity, it forever changes how the mind relates to thoughts. We generally project so much self-importance on thoughts because thoughts aren't understood for what they, you know, aren't seen for what they actually are. And especially some of these emotional patterns, too. When we see that, you know, a particular attitude, a particular mood, a particular habit of 
having a lot of doubt, for example, or a lot of shame, or a lot of pride, or whatever our particular, you know, pattern might be, but to see it take birth and then pass away, then the next time that, to really see that directly, then the next time that pattern is triggered and plays out, it's just not compelling in the sense of triggering attachment or identification. The mind just will have a lot more space around it, less pushed around by it. So if there's, you know, if we have, which I'm assuming we all have, these patterns that push our heart around, torment us, right, then we have every incentive to contemplate their underlying nature and to see them in terms of in terms of something that arises and then passes away, arises and passes away. Even like something we're driving and we have a close call and the fear of death arises, you know, I could have died. Or, you know, we're walking and we almost slip, but we, you know, catch ourselves. And, you know, we realize I could have, broken my tailbone, or I could have, whatever, hit my head. And that fear of death. Now, because that comes on very fast, right? But then, if there's enough momentum in our practice, the wisdom will see that whole life, my life flashing in front of me, right? See it in in the very powerful almost like an electric current of fear. And then, it, and then it goes away, right? Because now the mind is contemplating how it arises and it ceases. And in a way, because the mind is contemplating something, it um, causes the mind to be immune from getting identified. You know, the, the real cause for just falling into our habits of getting attached to different experiences, is a mind isn't protected. And we either can protect ourselves by having an anchor, you know, like coming back to the breath, knowing the breath as it's going in, knowing it, the breath as it's going out. But wisdom reflections, wisdom contemplations, also in a funny way are a samadhi object, a meditation anchor. So if I'm interested, if the mind, wisdom in the mind is interested in impermanence, and as you know, I'm going through my day or I'm formally sitting, either way, that I'm curious about things arising and passing, it prevents so much distraction, getting identified, becoming reactive, because the mind is interested in noticing that this is arising and this is ceasing and this is coming and this is going. So it doesn't really have any space to take things personally. This is a big debate in Buddhist circles, you know. The Buddha mostly taught um, by, you know, concentrating the mind using different meditation objects, developing a deep state of concentration with an object. Could be loving kindness, could be the breath. And then eventually, you know, with enough continuity, the peacefulness, the unification itself becomes the object the bliss of a quiet mind, of a unified mind, becomes the object of awareness, right? And then at some point, 
that concentration dissipates because it too arises and passes away. Like everything else in this conditioned world, things arise, concentration, then it ceases. And then as the concentration is fading, the unification is fading, then that becomes the first object for wisdom to contemplate. Oh, look at that. Concentration was really nice. Mind was very settled and peaceful. And now more thoughts are starting to show up. Now I'm noticing that the body hurts. You know, five minutes ago, didn't feel the body too much at all. Not too many thoughts at all. And the thoughts that were there were kind of wispy and not very, you know, not pushing the mind around very much. But now, and just contemplate, but but even though the mind is sort of falling into a more ordinary state of consciousness, distractedness, but now the mind is contemplating that distractedness, that ordinary state of this and that, in terms of things coming and going. So this is why, you know, we often talk about the gateways to freedom are these three gateways that we're going to study these next three courses. Seeing impermanence is good news because it's liberating. Seeing the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha nature, is liberating. Seeing the impersonal nature is liberating. Because by observing any of these aspects of reality, that it's changing, that it's unsatisfactory, it's not worthy of grasping because it's a changing, natural unfolding. There's really nothing actually there to grasp. Right? If something's in process, what do we grasp? It's like, you know, it's not a perfect metaphor, but you can't really grasp a river. You know, you can take a cup of a river, but that's not really the river. As soon as you take the cup out of the river, it's not the river. Because what makes a river river is the movement. That's really what a river is about. You know, grasp the wind. Can't do it. So when we use that stable awareness to contemplate impermanence or the way it is, right? It's like a gives the mind immunity from grasping. The more we're interested in change, the less grasping. This is one of the the great finds, you know, for Dharma practitioners. Like we want the goods, you know, we want the freedom. But we you know, it will never come about because I from this self point of view want freedom but there is a natural way that freedom arises freedom is the very nature of the mind that can be intimate with the conditions just as they are so if we want freedom if we want real peace we need to be intimate with the conditions with the underlying nature and you can go through any of those three doors, you know, in a sort of traditional early Buddhism frame, opening to the way it is, seeing things as they are, means 
where the mind or wisdom in the mind is getting interested in change, the changing nature, or getting interested in the unsatisfactory nature or the impersonal nature. And that sort of, that interest, because it's only wisdom or freedom or you know, whatever you want to call it, Nibbana, it's only the unconditioned that can really meet the moment. I can't meet the moment. The conditioned self, the sense of me as a Buddhist practitioner, I can't actually know. There's too much baggage. Right? There's too much conceptual baggage about me seeing things as they are. But the mind, right? the mind can meet the experience, but just a lot has to be uh, teased out, right? So part of cultivating that stability of awareness, we already have teased out a lot. When we're feeling pretty calm and settled, stable awareness, balanced awareness, no agenda, just one desire to connect, to see things as they are which is a very stabilizing desire, that desire, because the desire to connect, like we can't be involved and connect. We have to sort of, it's like hands off. So it has a very receptive quality to it. And the thing is about that stability of awareness, I often say this just as an instruction, like sensing being right in the middle as opposed to being on some watchtower looking down at experience, but right in the middle, but completely relaxed and open and allowing the moment experience to reveal itself. And, and that's sort of that disappearing in order to meet the moment, to contemplate the truth of impermanence, right? And so notice that like, as you get interested in permanence, you have to let go of a lot. Because otherwise, you'll see it's like it's a bit of a problem as you get see change or want to see change, right? And so when you feel that, like you're bumping up against something, notice that, be curious if that's also changing or if it's permanent. Is this changing or is this permanent? Is this fixed? Or sometimes I'll say, is this nature or is this self? Self in, in the sense of something permanent. Because even when we're sort of having problems, you know, in our set, we can get interested. Like, I mean, this is one of the good news pieces of impermanence. Problems are impermanent. They come and go and are not self. Right? So then... We can check that out. Like when we feel we're having a bad set, then, then look, because initially that will be just a thought. I'm having a bad set. You know, and you see it very quickly that goes away. And then maybe there's some other reverberation, some emotional reverberation, like the heart's really tight or the gut is really tight or the shoulders feel really tight, or something like that. You notice that. Is this permanent or is this alive with change? We just sort of... Whatever, whatever comes to mind, just keep that theme going. Be interested in that theme. And that way, because the, the mind in a way, it's, it just wants to, the conditioned mind, the deluded mind, 
it wants to interrupt that interest. So it's sort of really uh, that persistence and the integrity of the investigation. Like it, it really matters. And so this is why for some people, especially with a more intellectual kind of personality type, it's really useful. Like even for me, it was very useful to, to think, right, with concepts, to think, okay, so, yeah, so it is a natural process. It does have to be an unfolding. So that means it, there really isn't a thing. Right? And if it's not a thing, then what, what is this? Right? It's like, uh, you know, when something's a process, that means there's no ground there. Right? It's a movement. So where's the... Because from our normal, ordinary, egoic sense, it feels pretty solid. You know, the body feels pretty solid. My ideas feel pretty solid. Everything seems really set. But it didn't make logical sense. Now the point isn't that we're going to think this thing through. The point is to stimulate some real interest to look and to keep looking and to keep looking and to keep looking. And to really start to see that this experience that we construct in our, or, in our, or with our ordinary minds is just that. It's a construction that is getting reconstructed and reconstructed. And we basically are spellbound by the continuity of that, con- of that construction over and over again. And the whole house of cards falls apart if we ever take the time to develop an instrument, a stable mind, then that persists and invest in this investigation, this contemplation of change. Let me just read a few uh, words of the Buddha before dividing up for the small groups. This is from the Dhammapada. The world is shrouded in darkness, right? Not seen clearly. The world is shrouded in darkness. It is constantly consumed. What is the use of indulgence and merrymaking? Why don't you seek out the light? I mentioned, I think I read last week about that passage where the Buddha says we've shed more tears than the four great oceans. Basically, pursuing... Does he say it here? Indulgence and merrymaking, right? Things that ultimately aren't that important. Always having to renew them. Always having to renew them. Why don't we seek out the light? And what is the light? Right? It's really that what I was mentioning before about coming into alignment, being intimate, because it reveals the mind, you could say, that can be intimate. So in a way, our spiritual practice is opening to experience in a way that reveals the heart or the mind that can actually open to experience, can be intimate with experience. 
Because that mind that can be intimate with experience is the mind that has let go of everything that can be let go of. So that's the mind that's not attached. The reality of non-attachment is freedom. But we can't get there by wanting to get there. We get there with this natural process of basically returning, reintegrating the mind with the way it is. Right now our mind is spellbound by its own constructions, right? It's a pretty seductive dance we're in the middle of. So seductive that even as I'm hearing myself say this, it's like, oh, it just seems like a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) And there are a lot of interesting things to do, right? Music to make or museums to visit, TV shows to watch, friends to make things to eat. And you want me to contemplate the impermanent nature of all things? So in the small groups, I thought one of the things that might be useful to to talk about, if this seems important to you, is just like to share directly about the resistance of this, (coughs) excuse me, contemplation on impermanence. Like, the way the different ways your mind has dismissed the importance of it or the relevance of it or how you've checked it out and didn't get anything and like what your conclusions are about that just to, just to be honest about where you're at you know just in a conditioned ordinary sense where you're at with impermanence. Because, you know, in early Buddhism especially, there's not too many topics that are as highlighted as a mind opening to the truth of impermanence. I mean, it, the Buddha made a big deal of it. In the tradition, the lineage has made a big deal of contemplating impermanence. So it's just, you know, it's kind of useful to just acknowledge where we're at with it. And in particular, the resistance and just the seductiveness of whatever resistance we're experiencing. And then also in the small group, to like whenever there's been a little break, a little crack in the resistance, and there's felt like some real energy, some authentic interest, and maybe some real insight that has come your way in the investigation. Yeah, just uh, it's sort of that that energy is really how we find our way because the the mind can't help but be energized when it's seeing what it hasn't seen before. Just like a child, you know, when the child's playing with a new toy, they're just so alive. And it's spiritual seekers when we see something, there's so much energy shows up on the scene when the mind sees something, even even in a grosser level. Like sometimes I'll say to folks, you know, just in terms of contemplating the present moment, so just come along with me, just contemplate as I talk now. So this moment exists, clearly we know it's like this, but the past doesn't exist anywhere, right? It's like whatever this moment is, the next moment arises and fills the space of the previous moment. 
But if we get interested in the previous moments, we see that they actually don't exist anywhere. We can think about them now, but that's just the new arising in this present moment, right? Thinking about the past. But the past literally disappears. And the future, which seems like it's right here in front of us, actually doesn't exist yet in any way. We can have thoughts about the, of the future, but the future doesn't exist. So all we have is this, which is immediately disappearing so this can come to be, and disappearing so that this can come to be. So this is very thin, in a sense, with nothing behind it that we would call past, and nothing in front of it that we'd call future. And what this is, isn't a thing, right? Because it's immediately disappearing and something else is arising. Now we can get this some, to some degree intellectually, but why can't we really directly experience how thin, how ephemeral it is? And what is the impact when we start, the heart starts to relax into this truth? Well, what the Buddha says is that the heart is no longer interested in grasping anything, which really frees up what we could call the mind or this life to do what's good to do, because it's not wasting its time grasping anything. It doesn't waste its time with fear or greed, because it doesn't make sense when the underlying nature is seen more clearly. So those are some of the things you might chat about. But of course, anything that's come to mind, anything that's arisen in your practice around change and permanence, the ephemeral nature, of course, is appropriate. And it looks like maybe we have about 65. So why don't we count off by 21 and see how that goes. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.